Good morning. This is Grace Pratt, editor of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association Integrated Care Podcast. And this podcast is all about loneliness and social isolation. And in an ironic twist of fate, I'm here by myself. So we're just going to wing it. Hello, welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Grace Pratt, the editor of the podcast and behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I'm joined by two of my co-hosts today. We're working on a bit of a skeleton crew, which is ironic because our whole topic is on social isolation and loneliness. But luckily, I didn't end up here by myself this morning. I have uh, Dr. Christine Borst and Dr. Bridget Beachy. we're going to jump right into our topic today, but we're going to start with our usual introduction icebreaker. So I wonder if you guys could introduce yourself. And as we're getting going, um, kind of to set our stage, I, I wonder in this period of upside downness that we have been experiencing, what's helping you feel less alone in the world these days? Christine, you want to take that first? Hi, I'm Dr. Christine Boris, business owner, adjunct professor, among a slew of other things. Um, so it's a weird time because I know that there's a lot of social isolation for a lot of people, but I find myself in the other camp where I am always around the humans, the wonderful humans in my family who live in my house. And sometimes I'd be okay with maybe just a few days of social isolation. Um, but I do, so I think that that keeps me busy in one way, but there is the sadness of like missing just my friends and being able to hang out. And so, um, we've done a lot of like, you know, zoom happy hours with friends or doing like the, the games. And I think what's ironic is these are friends that I wouldn't be seeing anyways, because we live so far away. So that's been the beauty of all of this is connecting with people, not necessarily who are in town, but all of our friends all over. It's like given us an excuse to find a way to get together and everybody's home. So there's time. Uh, And I'm Bridget Beachy. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade, director of behavioral health, BHC here in the state of Washington at Community Health Essential Washington. And uh, really all things integrated care are of interest to me. And what's helping me with regards to social isolation is the fact that I still get to go into work at a medical clinic. And so I am surrounded all day with my colleagues and uh, support staff. And that really, really, really helps. And the other good thing is I get to work with my husband. And so uh, we, we get to do everything together, which is super fun. And uh, the other thing, and, and we did get the vaccine. I have my final dose uh, next week for the Moderna. And so that's been nice to have as a light at the end of the tunnel, which I understand that is not a green light to just go crazy. Uh, so we're still going to be very responsible, wear masks, social distance. However, uh, there are a few really good friends that I have who are, have also been vaccinated. So it just gives us a little bit more opportunities to be able to gather in very, very small uh, groups. And uh, uh, they've had some open, um, like a few restaurants have opened up outside. So doing some outdoor eating with friends. It's, isn't it really cold in Washington? It is. It's actually, <laughs> it was snowing this morning. They got uh, heaters everywhere. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> the furthest north I've ever lived is North Carolina. So I feel like my temperature barometer for myself is not great. I, I get really cold. Um, I would say for me, what's helping me feel less alone in the world um, is deliberately reaching out for connection. So trying to check in with myself. I, I think our listeners know, or if you're new to our podcast, I'm a single mom. Um, and that in itself can be kind of lonely a lot of times because it, there, you still have, you know, someone to share decision-making with and your co-parent, but it's different. And so sitting with the noticing times where I feel a little lonely or isolated and then naming it and specifically 
reaching out for connection. Um, I've even recently been able to reconnect um, with some friends that I haven't talked to in years and years and years and just schedule a time to check up and check in and to catch up with each other has been just really, really lovely. I've been very thankful for that. I like the um, point you made, Grace, about being intentional. Mm-hmm. So whatever your system is, just being planning it, being intentional, thinking about it, having it on your radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, we're going to talk as we're talking about loneliness today <laughs> and social isolation. One of the things we're going to talk about is how do we intervene in this area? <laughs> and I would have to say, I try to practice what I preach because that is something that I really, um, you know, talk with my, when I'm working with patients or even sometimes with supervisees because they get really caught up and busy in grad school. Um, All of my interns are students and that can be lonely in itself when you're, you know, working through all of the responsibilities that you have to take care of. And so that sort of mindful connection, that's my bread and butter. That's what I try to promote and try to practice (laughs) myself. If you have, if you have set up with some folks that you haven't talked to in a while, that sounds exactly like a really good behavioral health consultation. Well, you know, you can't, you can't see me on the audio, but I'm dusting <laughs> off my shoulders a little bit from the, from the sprays. I want to make a quick note that even though Naftali is not here with us today, he wanted me to share that the call for proposals for the conference go live on February 1st. So we would love for you to share your ideas and the awesome work that you're doing and to submit a proposal for the conference. There's more information available on that at integratedcareconference.com. Let's shift into our conversation because I, I want to really um, spend some time talking about this before Christine has to leave us, and then we'll get some spotlight time talking more about the contextual interview uh, with Bridget in a little while. You know, I kind of want to just open this conversation we're having was inspired by a really nice conversation on the CFHA listserv uh, around the holidays. And I think the holidays are a time when we're thinking a lot about loneliness, hearing about social isolation, and especially this past year as we navigated the holidays through the pandemic for the first time and families have had to make choices um, of who they're going to be with and who they're going to be separate from. And it's such a just difficult emotional calculus involved in that. Anyway, there was a great conversation on the listserv about, you know, are are we doing any kind of assessment for loneliness or social isolation or how are we seeing this come up in our work? So I want to just kind of open broadly and start with, you know, what are some of your thoughts about how you see this happen for patients and how it impacts health? I have a lot to say on it, so I'm going to, I'm going to wait and go, go to Christine first. You know, one of the main ways I see this, and this is not at all the question that you asked, Grace, but is among like the providers and the residents and the trainees. And I think having been a part of that world, um, I try to, we try to be mindful, especially around the holidays to, I think it's a similar um, community as military where you're used to moving a lot, right? And and trainees and, and being away from family and having, you know, creating your new life for short periods of time. And so we try to be mindful about, you know, okay, it's, we are set, come on over for the holidays, come on over for this, but it was very strange this year. So, so finding a way to reach out and connect to, to the providers who are extra stressed and overwhelmed this year and lonely and away from their families. Um, and, and I don't know if there's a good answer to that. And the thing is, is it's not gone, right? Just because the holidays are over doesn't mean it's not, that need hasn't gone away. Um, But I've seen a lot of beautiful things among the different providers that are just like little notes to each other or tiny gifts or, you know, thinking of you baked this for you. So, you know, how small connections in a different way, but I think it is important not only to take care of our patients, but also the rest of the medical staff and community that we work with. Yeah. I, I really like Christine that you're taking into account in your conceptualization of how to address this, the context of it. So you're taking into account, so if you, and Grace as well, you know, if you're an intern, what is the intern's context? Maybe they've moved, maybe they've moved without their family. We've had so many of our interns, which I think is very interesting, but I'm very proud of them as mamas. Uh, They moved away from their family and had to really be intentional uh, about connecting with their children and just like, I'm so proud of 
how resilient that is to stay connected with their kids and do this thing for themselves. So uh, really brave women out there and a lot of our, our, our guys too have gone through uh, some really intense things as far as the residency, the interns. So I think that's a huge factor in working with patients. I know one trick pony. That's, that's why I don't even ask patients what the presenting problem is because I'm going to get that with the, when they come in, you know, there could be myriad reasons that like sparked the consult. Maybe uncontrolled diabetes is it, maybe smoking cessation is it, maybe depression. But instead of focusing in on that, walking into that room and saying, all right, I want to learn about you. Tell me about your living situation. Tell me about your relationship status. Tell me who are the important family members in your life? Who are the friends in your life? Uh, what spirituality or community connection do you have? What do you do for work? And what do you do for fun? Which is the, uh, that's the contextual interview, the love work play part. They'll tell you what they need. And you're sitting there digesting this information. Okay, I live by myself. I'm in a relationship, but I don't, he or she is across the country. We used to be able to fly to each other and stay for three months at a time. I used to be able to go to work, but now I'm at home. I'm furloughed. I'm this, that. And I don't have a lot of family in this area. Like if you just listen to what they tell you, you can extrapolate and then always, always, always check in with them and say, well, based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like you don't have a lot of literal physical connection. Like on a regular basis with folks, is this something that's tough for you? Most of the people break down the tears and they say, absolutely. And so now we know it's an issue. Other folks say, oh my God, I love it so much. I have never been happier in my life. I get to pick and choose when I spend time with people. I get to do my own thing. If that's the case, then it's not an issue. So I don't know. Is it cliche to say as a person trained in mental health to listen to what they say and then <laughs> reflect it back to them? I don't know. If that's cliche, I don't want to be right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listen to it. They'll tell you what's up. You just got to listen for it. But I think that's so important, Bridget, because especially I think of myself as a new trainee, you get so stressed about like, what should I say or what should I do? And it's like, no, no, mm. this is it. This is the easy part. Like, just help, just listen and reflect and they know. And, you know, I think about in what spurred this conversation was a, a really interesting question about how are you assessing for loneliness and is there a standardized assessment to use? And I think there are you know, places where that would make sense. Absolutely. And, and places where, you know, I really applaud the idea that we should be thinking broadly about the other pieces that are connected to what the patient is presenting with. Because just like you said, Bridget, the referral may be for any number of reasons. And we have to, this is where our clinical judgment as healthcare providers comes in. Uh, you give someone a PHQ-9, it's 14. Okay, but we know a 14 on a PHQ-9 does, is not a direct line to moderate depression. Screenings are not diagnostic. You know, we have to ask further questions. We have to know more. Maybe this person isn't sleeping, not because they're depressed, but because they just lost their significant other and now their bed is empty and they're lonely and they're feeling anxious at night. And, and it's this acute grief reaction. So we have to have more of a conversation. And, you know, loneliness and social isolation is a thread that can run through a lot of that. You mentioned uncontrolled diabetes. Maybe this person has, you know, low health literacy and they used to have a regular close contact with a family member or support person who helped them understanding their insulin and making adjustments and doing all of those things to care for themselves. And so it's part of the bigger story and this web of social connections and web of relationships is part of what supports us in all of our biopsychosocial spiritual aspects of health. Um, and so we as providers, and we've been doing residency interviews right now, which involves a lot of me getting on a soapbox and telling people, this is what we believe about behavioral health. And one of the things I say is that, you know, those distinctions we make between biomedical problems versus psychosocial problems are completely arbitrary. They're to make it a little easier for us to discern between what's going on, but truly 
it's all one thing. We have to look at the whole person. And I would extend that and say, we have to look at the whole family and the whole system. And that we know that the family is not just the people that you're biologically or legally related to, but the people who are part of the, the patient and us as providers, part of our world and part of our regular interactions, whether it's you know physically or mentally or emotionally. And so we have to take that system into account. The challenge of that is it can get overwhelming. You know, the more opportunity, the more information we have, the more opportunities for assessment, but also the more opportunities for things to get a little cloudy. Yeah. And, and I know that that's one of my biggest pet peeves is as a behavioral health consultant, as a proponent of the PCBH model is, oh, well, you're BHC. So your job is to just go in and teach deep breathing, or you're going to just do skills. We're not going to we're not going to get into all that mental health stuff. We're just going to do skills. And that's what really, that's why I want to do this job. And I'm thinking, which, you know, I, I, we probably have folks that are students and listening. It is okay. If you had that thought, uh, that's very, very normal and natural. Just as a slight warning, if you went into the medical clinic so that things would be simplified easier and you wouldn't have to deal with human beings I don't know I'm just gonna stop I was there. really curious how you're gonna finish that I sentence I, I, radiology, <laughs> I think radiology I, is the option you're in the wrong yeah, you're in the you're in the wrong you're in the you're yeah. you are barking up the wrong tree you need to stop now do not pass go and go somewhere else because we cannot and I don't even want to get away from the messiness of humans yeah. that's the other thing I hear well, if you guys see so many patients in a day, you're gonna you're gonna get so burned out because patient or um, humans are messy. What? But you know what? what I think a lot of that comes from is humans are messy, and it's not my job to get in there and fix the mess. Right. It's so not my the, job. That obsession with fixing it. Yes, we can, and I think that's part of what's so hard you know, for providers, and I'm not just saying the medical providers, all, any all provider who then wants to, well, patient's lonely, but there's nothing I can do about that. So, ugh. and you know, they just, you know, put up walls or put up barriers or don't ask because they can't fix it. And I think that's a little bit different. And I, I want us to have a conversation on a totally different podcast about, you know, assessing for things that you can't treat and some of the ethics Ooh. around that. There was another really good conversation on the listserv about that, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about if there's an elephant in the room and everything in your being is telling you that fill in the blank, social isolation, loneliness, um, you know, existential dread and hopelessness. If everything in you is telling you that that's part of the patient's problem and you ignore it because you don't know what to do with it, you're doing a disservice to your patient. Your job is not to fix it and not, not to have an easy answer in a 10 minute encounter, but that doesn't mean that we don't touch it. And how much more isolating and how much more lonely is it for someone um, to be carrying this burden and then have their provider be afraid of it or mm -hmm. have their provider reject that part of them or that part of their struggle because there's nothing I could do about it. And I wonder too, Grace, if that is like when the provider feels the same thing, how do I help them when I feel the same thing? I think there's a lot of fear in that. And, and the, the, beauty in a very strange way of what's going on this past year is that a lot of us are in the same boat for the first time ever across the globe. And it's like, oh God, I feel lonely too, but how am I supposed to help them if I can't help myself? Mm -hmm. But connect, I think connecting and saying, I, I feel that like that it's really tough can go a really long way in helping the patient know that they're not the only one feeling this way. Christine, that is such a good point. Like such a good point. And you say, based on everything you told me, I can imagine that you're feeling this way, this way, or that way. Like Grace is saying, label it, name it. And if you'd name it right, a lot of times you'll get instant tears because mm -hmm. uh, that means that we've hit the nail on the head. And if one of the things that I've really practiced, uh, and I'm going to give shout out to uh, my partner in crime, uh, David Bauman, 
is that he does a lot of that immediacy with patients. He does a lot of that, hey, we're in the same soup. Actually, he's practiced a lot, and I do it now too, is saying, I'm finding my mind trying to fix what you're telling me. And I know that that's part of the problem is that we need to just recognize, we need to sit here in this and, and that it's okay. And based on if a thousand people were in your shoes, a thousand of them would feel very lonely. And that makes sense. And we need to just sit in this. There's, there's not a fix with a capital F. Now that's not saying that there's not something we can practice and go one baby step, but whatever baby step we take is not to eradicate this feeling. This is to re-engage, not to eradicate. Yes. And I want to offer a really specific baby step or really specific intervention around this that has been helpful for myself and our residents and my interns that are working with patients in our clinic. And that's drawing an eco map with the patient. Um, It just takes a piece of paper and a pencil. It's very simple to do. And it's something that people understand when you talk about where is your energy going out and where are you getting it put back in? And you draw the little bubbles. It could be school. It could be work. It could be the neighborhood. It could be the church, whatever it is for the person. And then you draw lines to connecting, showing the flow of energy and just getting that snapshot of, whoa, everything in my life is dumping out and I have nothing pouring in leads to a logical next question for the patient of where's, what, what can you add or what can you eliminate? Because we can see in this picture that you are pouring out and we know, I mean, again, kind of a cliche, probably an overused analogy, but you cannot pour from an empty cup. And so can you add any little thing to be putting energy back in Um, And, you know, for someone who has identified that it is a social isolation or a loneliness, is there an, uh, you know, people have these ideas and resilience and strengths within themselves that usually are untapped. So is there someone who you're not reaching out to? Is there someone who's been supportive in the past, even a memory of someone that you could feel more connected with, that then you could strengthen that bond to be pouring back in? Or is there a place where you are draining out energy so much that you could set a boundary and staunch a little bit of that flow? And I, I love that because the EcoMap takes, once it clicks for the patient, which sometimes can take a minute or two, but it takes usually about five minutes to draw. You can do it right there in the exam room. And it's a really simple graphical depiction that can lead to a really specific action step as far as strengthening a bond or setting a boundary that can make a difference in someone's social life. And so I love that intervention and I wanted to make sure to highlight it as we're talking through, because just what you said, Bridget, we need to sit with this. We need to experience it. We need to not force our patient past it, but that doesn't mean that we're hopeless. And that doesn't mean that we're helpless. I always say that cliches are cliche for a reason. That's another cliche I say. Are there other ways that you guys find, you know, that you have some action or some intervention around loneliness or social isolation? I mean, absolutely, Grace. I mean, again, you're listening, the same thing with the EcoMap that you're doing when you're doing the contextual interview or EcoMap, it doesn't matter. When you're finding out about what the person's everyday life consists of, that is all fodder for possible intervention. So if they say, oh my gosh, I used to really like doing this, or when you go to the hobby section and they're telling you, well, yeah, you know, in years past, I would get together with all my friends and we'd play cards. So now we're living in COVID times. So we have to, now I I try to keep that point of like letting them talk a little bit more, but you as the clinician, if you've got enough trust, you can throw ideas out and say, have you thought of doing some type of, is there, and, and, and honestly, this isn't manipulative, I promise, <laughs> asking with straight up curiosity. Uh, so I come up with an idea. So instead of just shoving and be like, hey, I think that online, uh, online systems with your friends and poker could be helpful. I will phrase it in the form of a question say, have, are there any options for like, you get together in groups and you're able to play online because I know that that's like a huge thing now, especially if that's what they used to like to do. And I'm also very, very careful to clearly label that this is not probably going to be the same. Because I think that if you could just hit that right out front with patients, that really helps with this. Well, it's not the same. 
And I agree with patients. Doing online cards with all your friends is not the same or online games or whatever it is a person does. It's not the same. Mm -hmm. And this sucks. And there's not anything we can do to probably get rid of that. And we can all either sit in the suckiness or we can have something that sucks a little bit less. Yeah. If all of our energy <laughs> is focused on how much it sucks, then we're not able to experience, you know, an alternative that may and is not going to be the same, but is going to be something. Um, you know, it's those good act principles that right. are so and meaningful. And you're labeling it right out front, which mm -hmm. is like a negotiation strategy. I'm mm -hmm. reading books on negotiation right now. I don't know, it's super fun, but you identify like the worst part of this. Like, what is the person gonna probably say back? They're gonna say it's not the same. Well, I do, I think we need to take the the energy out of that because they are right. It's not the same, but validate. And then as we know, another cliche, once we get to the point where a person feels validated, now we can make the shift to intervention. If you try to move into intervention too quickly, that's when you're going to get run into a lot of that resistance. Well, we call it resistance. Mm -hmm. It's actually probably you as the clinician are trying to move too quickly. And I get it. If you're a BHC, we have to move quickly, but that is not an excuse to be sloppy clinically. Uh, we have to go through the paces, do things the right way. And the patient, if we're, if they're not able to get there in 25 minutes, then they don't get there. Yeah. Yep. I completely agree. Um, as we're sort of closing this section of our conversation, you know, as BHCs, we're practicing in team-based care. And I wanted to spend a few minutes just reflecting on sort of clinical isolation and how that team-based care makes a difference for us as providers um, as far as social isolation and loneliness. And I wonder if you had any thoughts to share on that. I guess this kind of relates back to the very first question you asked of what helps with social isolation. I said, coming to work every day. Mm -hmm. And spending time with the with with my colleagues, you know, it's there is a camaraderie that knowing that I don't have full ownership of the patient, you know, that they I, that we get to work together, and it, I think it takes a lot of the pressure off of you as the clinician and off of the patient. It takes pressure off, and in uh, in a way where we can just move a little bit more naturally, and we can, I don't know, I just keep having in my head like this picture of like the idea that just because something is a shorter amount of time to still not rush mm -hmm. and the, the really good PCBH clinicians like your Kirk Strassels or Patty Robinson, they never seem like they're in a rush, but it is a shorter amount of time. And uh, so I don't know. I, I guess we, I went off slightly with the question with regards to the team-based care, but that things trust the team. Oh, there we go. I got it. <laughs> trust the team. Trust the process. You as the clinician don't need to rush. You don't need to do everything. We have yeah. teammates. Yeah. And then we share, you know, we share the, I don't want to say burden, but we share the, the pain that comes from working with patients and being in that messy and especially the pain of things that we're unable to fix. Um, because I, yeah, I think it's very, speaking of validating, it's validating for, but you know, providers who have more biomedical training to hear from us, mental health specialists, oh no, I don't have a fix for this either. <laughs> and, and, you know, there is a, a saying that I have just been holding on to so tightly, and I may have said it on the podcast before, but um, someone said to me about something I was experiencing, it's not hard because you're doing it wrong. It's just hard because it's hard. I love that. Uh, oh man, it has just carried me through a lot. And I share that with our providers too, especially when they're just feeling a lot of, they're, they're struggling with the fact that they can't help a patient or they don't have an answer. And I, first I push back on the fact that they think they're not helping because right. we need to change our definition of what's helpful. But also I just reflect to them, this is not hard because you're doing something wrong. This is hard because it's hard. And when we're in that together, and especially I think when we, as the traditionally mental health trained providers don't have an answer, right. they can take a little pressure off themselves. Oh, okay. 
I, this is not because there's something wrong with me. This is not because I'm failing my patient. It's just a really tough situation. Grace, I, I don't know. I don't even know if I want to say anything else after that, because I feel like I'll taint the beauty of what you just said, (laughs) but I feel like not, but, and I feel like on a regular basis, I say in a very human way to our residents, our our medical residents, because obviously you know, thank God we get to work together and train together for three years. It's wonderful. Uh, We don't have something for that in the literal traditional sense. Now that doesn't mean that there's like, you're saying that there's not something we can do because the fact that the patient's in here talking with you about it and you're having that, having that dialogue tells me already that there's something useful and helpful about it, but we don't have something for that in the traditional sense. Like for example, one of the gentlemen I was just working with recently, uh, he's in his 80s and he lost his wife of 60 something years. They had 10 children together, made an entire life and she's gone. She passed away in, uh, I think it was October or November. Like we don't have something for you lost your partner of 66 years or whatever it was and the mother of your 10 children. And now there's, of course, there's great grandchildren. I think there might even be great, great grandchildren in there. Now that doesn't mean that we don't can have like, listen to him and he has a really special relationship with one of his great grandchildren. So we really highlighted that and he loves the garden. So we talked about like, he has like a, he's like counting down the days till spring and he didn't want to do the indoor gardening, blah, blah, which is fine. It's fine. Uh, but it's like, we don't have something for that. And I, and I told him that now that doesn't mean we're going to give up. He's still going to hold on to that really precious relationship with his great granddaughter. He told me I can wait for spring. I can do this. You know, he had all the, you know, he's demonstrating that he's bought in and he's, he's, he's not going to give up. But as far as that pain, that twinge that he feels every minute of every day, because his partner isn't here, I'm sorry. And if somebody on the, could think of something for that, you know, let me know, but I don't even think we'd want that. Even if it was a magic pill, what we eradicate the memory exactly. of that person. What does that do for the, the legacy of, you know, the love and the life that they had, we can't make, right. we can't make pain, not hurt and emotional pain, particularly, but also a lot of physical pain too. And I think that again, sort of leads into a whole other conversation that we need to have. Um, it, but that's part of the human experience and that's part of we hurt because we loved and because we cared and that what you can't have one without the other Um, you just can't you literally you literally just can't and if we look at that 80 something year old guy as hey we I'm not saying not to do a screener because in some cases it's useful and helpful but if we look at oh well I'm going to go in there he's dealing with depression because that was the referral the referral was for depression and I'm going to go teach him behavior activation and I don't find out that his wife of 60 something years passed away now maybe he tells me it but I'd rather just like get that from the jump how much more can I honor him so I don't know for you BHCs out there we don't have to lose our humanity because we're working in a medical center we don't have to rush even if we have a shorter amount of time at, at the end of the day, you're still connecting with people. And yes, you might use the most evidence-informed science for it, but without context, it means nothing. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. I, I, I want to take that and I want to carry it into talking about the contextual interview. <laughs> this is one of my favorite conversations that we've had. And I just want to force it straight into the ears of everyone that I work with. <laughs> Uh, TBD on the mechanism for that, but we'll figure it out. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm going to shift us. Um, we ha- I've been doing interviews with all of our co-hosts to, to highlight them and to discuss something that they're passionate about. And I've given everyone a choice except you. <laughs> I told Bridget, you don't have a choice. We are going to sit down and talk in depth about the contextual interview. And I don't care if you don't like it, although I knew that you would love it because, you know. Um, So this is your space and you have the floor. Please get all the way on your soapbox and 
start from, let's pretend that someone who clearly has never listened to our podcast before, including mm. the first half of this episode, knows nothing about the contextual interview or its purpose or what it contains. And so just lay it on us. Oh man. All right. Be concise and clear. I got you. <laughs> so now I'm regretting what I said earlier about if you're a new BHC and you're listening to this and you're hoping to have more clear answers and that's why you went in the medicine because when I look back on when I look back on how I got into working in a medical setting in primary care behavioral health I do think that there was some aspect of feeling like it was a slightly harder science that maybe originally appealed I think that there was also some of those uh, those videos unnatural causes uh, that they did where they exposed the social determinants of health and what it did to the mind-body connection. And so just kind of, a lot of it was like, oh my gosh, the mind-body connection. How are we just like leaving a big part of that out? We need to get in there and talk more about this. And there was probably, if I'm gonna be honest with myself, I'm gonna step off my pedestal, was probably just feeling like, yeah, you can go, and if someone's having a panic attack, you don't have to go through all of therapy. You could just teach them what to do with a panic attack. And so, like any good student, I learned every intervention that there possibly can. I read uh, from front to back, Chris Hunter et al's, at the time, I think it was the 2016 version. It was the purple book and now it's the blue book for the updated version. And it has such wonderful information in that. So thank you, Chris. Uh, we actually did a PCBH corner with Chris and said like, oh my gosh, what made you do it? He said, well, there wasn't a, a source out there that consolidated all this information and we needed to have it. So it was awesome, right? And so then I'm learning the nuts and bolts of the PCBH part of, of how to be in the pods and how to make yourself available. And I'm armed with all of my evidence informed interventions. Okay, you throw it at me, I got you. Like smoking cessation, yep. We're gonna break it into the three, the habit, the psychology, uh, the, the habit piece, the psychology piece and the bio, biology piece, like everything. And then you, you start doing the work. <laughs> And you realize that uh, not everybody's as excited about what you have to say. And I might have said on another podcast before, but I went as an intern all excited into this visit with this, this woman who was going to, she was interested. She didn't say what she wanted to, but she was interested in quitting smoking. I do this whole thing and she's just like, well, the PCP told me she was interested. Now looking back on it, I don't think she was interested at the time. <laughs> and she's just like, what makes you think I want to live longer? And then she divulged contextual information, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. So I'm in there all armed with all my interventions to help this person quit smoking so that she can be healthier and she can live longer. She's like, I don't want to live longer. Here's, the, here's my contextual information, X, Y, Z. So based on my context, do you think I want to live longer? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to answer that right now as an intern. <laughs> and so uh, then I took a postdoctoral fellowship. So I made it through my internship, all that. I still kind of felt really confident. And I, I joined my postdoc with Kirk Strassel, who is the second author on ACT and uh, one of the co-founders, along with Patty Robinson, his wife, on uh, uh, focused acceptance and commitment therapy. And he hands me this sheet, serendipitously enough, I just found in his old boxes of books, an original contextual interview that he had given me when I first started. And he's like, oh, well, do you know how to do contextual interview and I was like uh, yeah of course and I'm looking through the questions I'm like yeah I asked those questions I asked those questions well maybe not in some type of order but like I get there so he shadows me a few times and he's just like Bridge how are you going to help somebody if you don't know anything about them <laughs> I'm like well I mean he's like you were in there for 45 minutes what do we know about the person I was like well she's a nurse I still remember this this was like six and a half years ago remember it vividly I'm like, well, she's a nurse. She's having struggles at her job. Mm, I think she's married. He's like, you were in there for 45 minutes and you were doing all the Rogerian things. You were super nice. You were super kind. You had really good energy with her. But what do you know about her? He's like, the reason you get paid the big bucks. And I was like, what big bucks? But all right, that's for another day. He's like, the reason you get paid the big bucks is so you can help her. And in order to help her, you need to know about her life. So it is your moral obligation, an ethical obligation as a clinician to find out about her life. So then you guys can work together to come up with a plan that helps her life. Mm. And I was like, 
Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But I'm thinking, how do I do this in 30 minutes? Like, I finally feel like I got my thing down where I can get in and out in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then he's handing me this list of questions I have to ask. Like, are you like, how? And over time, and lots of tears and lots of questioning whether I even went into the right field. So it's not wrong to question. <laughs> and really, I was like, I don't even know if this is the right postdoc because I don't know if I can do this work. And after practicing the contextual interview on probably every family member, every friend, every fictional character in a movie, uh, I finally got it. I don't know, a light bulb went off. And it's like, you start with the contextual interview because it lays the foundation for everything. And, and I still have Kirk in my head every single day when I'm training our, our not only our behavioral health folks, but our physicians. How can you help the patient if you don't know anything about them? And this is an organized, structural procedural way it is your ethical obligation to know them and in given the context that we're in we have to also see a lot of patients because guess what the number one concern that we have in this nation and probably across the world is access issues mm -hmm. so if i take 90 minutes with every patient how many patients am i able to reach so this isn't because i'm sitting around and i just love short things. I'm like, oh, I want it to be 25 minutes. And once it's 25 minutes, I kick the patient out of the room. Another uh, quote that Kirk said that sticks with me is the visit takes as long as the visit takes, which you would think is like the complete opposite of what he's saying. But once you understand this role long enough, which takes years and years and years, you understand the nuance of what he's saying. So folks, if you're new BHCs and you're struggling with this contextual interview and it doesn't make sense and you feel like you're being told two opposite messages, like, do this in 25 minutes, but the visit takes as long as it takes. Get to know the patient, but have them leave with a skill. And it, if it's sounding like all this information is literally in direct opposition of one another, that is normal. And I had this conversation with one of our postdoc where I spelled it out and I said, I actually feel guilty as a supervisor that I am aware that I am telling you two things and from your ears and from your perspective, it probably sounds in stark opposition. But I promise you, if you follow the process and you follow what we're telling you, you will get to the place of that nuance where you can hold both things as true all at once. So uh, we do the contextual interview to organize our thoughts, to organize the patient. Patients are calmed down when things are organized, to give us a clear structure of where we can do smart goals and interventions because once again, the patient is doing the most of that legwork. So most of the time, if you get through a pretty good contextual interview, you will have five, six, seven options for a SMART goal because they've just told you them. Mm -hmm. Oh, I used to go walking with my friend. Oh my gosh, we used to go and play cards. And one of the things that I, uh, I love is connecting with my grandkids. They will tell you in the contextual interview and that's what will help you to speed up as you go. Uh, and so, and a lot of educators, you know, you, you have to learn how to do it, right? And then you do it uh, the way you need to, and then you get efficient at it. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, I, I want to ask, you know, well, you've sold me on the purpose, obviously, not that I needed it, but I, right. that was such a, a wonderful and passionate description of why the contextual interview is important and why it works and also understanding how on the surface it can seem a bit counterintuitive. I wonder if you could get really specific about kind of the logistics of it when does it happen? How do you introduce it to patients? About how long does it take you? Is there, you know, if someone's hearing this for the first time, is there a set of questions they can find somewhere that they can use? How, tell us a bit more about the specifics. Absolutely. So in Kirk and Patty's Real Behavior Change in Primary Care, I think it's 2011, 2012 uh, book, they have the Love Work Play interview. Uh, and so it's in that book. Uh, we've made a, a couple minor iterations uh, over. So if anybody wants the specific version, I use, uh, I have it. Uh, so you can email me at BridgetBeachy at gmail.com. It's also in a book chapter that, uh, but not everyone has access to a random book chapter in 2018. It's also in there. Uh, so the, the specific components of of it, the very first question is the living situation. The second one is the relationship status. The third one is family friends, spiritual or community life or belief system, all of the above, uh, work slash income. And then for kids, it's school. And for teenagers, it's school and or work. And then fun and hobbies. So that's the love, work, play part. 
And then the health behaviors is uh, the from from caffeine and you go in uh, order of least stigmatizing. So caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, street drugs and prescription drugs. And then the health behaviors, diet, exercise, sleep, and sex. Sometimes you can do sex during the relationship status, especially for teenagers. You're going to probably always want to do it. Uh, just you're going to want to do that aspect for many, many reasons. And so it's the very first thing that I do after my introduction. The introduction is about 60 minutes or 60 minutes, 60 seconds long. Uh, if you go to our YouTube There's a channel, lot of great examples. I use them for training every year. <laughs> There's like 53 second introductions you can find. There's a couple of uh, Dr. Bauman. There's a couple of myself and literally, and then we have multiple contextual interviews. We have full visits. So you can see a, a sample of what this looks like in real time, but essentially you let them know the informed consent aspects. Uh, you always are tying it. If it's a, a pure warm handoff, you're going to tie it to Dr. Smith asked me to come in here to talk to you about depression. Uh, and then you say, you know, I'm a, I'm a behavioral health consultant. I'm a licensed psychologist by trade. I work on the medical team. Uh, Dr. Jones and I have worked together for a lot of years. Uh, and my job is to help patients improve their overall health, looking at their emotional health, their physical health, and coming up with a game plan. So what we're going to do today, if it's okay with you, is I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions to get to know you. I'm going to chart right into your medical chart. And then we're going to come up with a game plan at the end of this, probably about 20, 25 minutes. And whatever plan we come up with, I will make sure that Dr. Jones knows about it. And that is, that's it. That's the introduction. And I launch right in and I say, is it okay if I just launch right into getting, getting to know you? And I don't know, I've been doing this for six and a half years and everybody's like, sure. And I just say, who all do you live with? Who all's in the home right now? And if you, if there is actually an issue about homelessness, then you do say something, what's the living situation? Where are you staying? So you can, you know, you're not on an island here. You have your team and you can tweak the words. But the most common word that I'm going, or common phrase I'm going to say is who falls in the home? Um, what's the living situation? Uh, and then I listen for that. And I'm already, I'm listening. And this is what takes time. And this is what takes practice. I'm already listening for the rest of the contextual interview based on what they tell me on the living situation. I'm already listening for what's the relationship, their family, what do they do for work? Because sometimes it comes out in that. And well, yeah, I live with uh, my, my three kids. My next question is, is there anybody else in the house? So I, oh, I don't move on until I know exactly who's in that house. So you and your three children. And they're like, yep. I'm like, that's it. They're like, yep. All right. And your kids, what years were they born? I've learned longitudinally the years they were born, not their ages, because when you see them back in two years, it's maddening to go through your paperwork, say when they were born. Then they say, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, so you have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. Wowzers. Now, their father or fathers, do they help out at all? Are you on your own? What's the situation? And you could you imagine that that could like be off-putting, but if you say it in a very curious way, I, I, ha I haven't been thrown out of a room ever. We have six and a half years worth of patient satisfaction that is in the close to as close to a hundred as you can get. And if you do it in a respectful manner, not a judgmental manner, like, oh, well, how many fathers do you have? Like, I really want to know what your context is. And when you show that through, and then that answers it, well, my oldest, his father, blah, 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 my youngest two, they have the same father. We just split up. Okay. So is that your most recent relationship? Or are you dating somebody right now? Or you know, where are we at with that? And so again, you're just going through living situation. And I know that I just went from family and then I skipped back up to relationship. But that's because I want to get the ages of the kids. And at the ages of the kids, that can then mold right into the relationship. And then you literally just take that, what important family members are there? Uh, what friends do you spend time with? Is there anything that's super important to you, such as a belief system or spirituality, religion? And so I, I frame it like that, because if you're just like, oh, well, are you religious? People are like, no, but they, it doesn't mean they don't have a belief system. Yeah, I love from what you're describing it links back to something you said earlier that um, it's not that we abandon our humanity of working with people or our clinical judgment. All of this is, it's not that you're going through a list of questions. It's not cold. It's not a checklist, but it's getting to know the patient, but with some structure to it. And it can feel a little bit checklisty, kind of have it in the form of, a check, and at first, but that's just part of like, you learn a new instrument. You have 
to learn the chords first. You learn a new sport. You have to learn the fundamentals first. It's going to feel awkward. It should feel awkward because this is a high level skill and that's okay. That's again, part of it where you're getting that practice and then get efficient at it later. Do it, go through the repetitions. And that's why we actually turned it into the phrase of a procedure because that really resonated with the medical residents. This is a procedure like any other that you do in medicine. It has a start, it has a finish. Yes, there's, you know, there's flexibility and there's humanity, but we got to get the verbiage down. If you're doing a contextual interview, it depends on the timing. It could be, it could take up most of the, it could take 18 minutes, but then you're going to be so equipped that your intervention is going to come quicker. Sometimes you can get it done in eight minutes. For our medical residents, I try to encourage them to get it in that like six to eight minutes because they're going to get so much more information than they normally do. And as a clinician, like a behavioral health clinician, where you're really using your contextual interview as the foundation to turn to an intervention, it might go a little bit longer, but it's because you're kind of splicing together the, the, the summary, the psychoeducation and the intervention all into it. So and the what, relationship building. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, what, we all like to talk about what's important to us. What better way to start rapport? Tell me about, I want to get to know you. And if you are genuine in that pursuit, like I said, our rapport uh, that we get on our BHC patient satisfaction scores is so high. And they compare that. Some of it is integration. Some of it's traditional. We have no, there is no like, oh, well, ours is lower because we're integrated and this happens more fast or faster setting or something. No. I mean, the very name, people ask me all the time, well, where's the rapport building? This is the rapport building. Yeah. Where is the values clarification? This is the values clarification. So you, you don't just, you embody it. You don't do fact or act. You embody act and fact. And as anybody who knows act and fact, they say you can use any therapeutic interventions as long as it works from any other guild or whatever. You could do a CBT. You could do, you could utilize the style of motivational interviewing. You can use some of these other concepts because you don't just do act or fact. You embody it. Uh, well, on that note, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Bridget. I, I feel like I got to know you and your passion better from this snapshot of you teaching about the contextual interview. And I'm really thankful for that. And I know that our listeners are going to just really find it helpful and useful. And we will link to several things in the show notes as far as the YouTube channel and the citation for the book chapter that you mentioned. And, um, you know, we'll get everyone connected. But if someone wanted to reach you directly to kind of continue this conversation, how would it be best for them to connect with you? Honestly, good old fashioned email. Uh, just it's BridgetBeachy at gmail.com. And if you just Google Bridget Beachy Integrated Care, you'd find how to spell it just in case it, <laughs> it's, it's funky out there. But I'm sure we have that in the show notes, the, the spelling of our names. Yes, we do. And so thank you so much. Uh, this really is one of my favorite episodes that we've done. And I love that we're able to keep coming back and keep connecting around ideas and inspiration and energy around this work that we're doing. Um, we are going to jump to Deepu, who is with us in spirit and has recorded uh, a closing message for us. Shelter in Place by Kim Stafford, written on March 20th, 2020. Long before the pandemic, the trees knew how to guard one place with roots and shade. Moss found how to hug a stone for life. Every stream works out how to move in place, staying home, even as it flows generously outward, sending bounty far. Now is our time to practice singing from balconies, sending words of comfort by any courier, kindling our lonesome generosity to shine in all directions like stars. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Christine. Thank you to all of our listeners. And we'll talk to you again next month.